This is The Dog and Bone. Welcome to The Dog and Bone, a series of podcasts brought to you by Propeller Group. I'm Martin Lote, curator of The Dog and Bone. In each episode, you'll listen in to a conversation between two senior people at the sharp end of business change and transformation, with their permission, of course. Our two guests will chat and question each other as equals, exploring industry topics and stories from their careers. Hopefully, they'll dig up some tasty morsels for us to chew on. In this show, we take a look at advertising strategy and planning with two champions of this sometimes misunderstood world. Andy Nairn, co-founder of ad agency Lucky Generals and a popular advertising commentator, had a good old natter with Alison Hode, chief strategy officer at Bartle Bogle Hegarty. This year is the 50th anniversary of advertising planning as a recognised discipline. Our two planning experts discuss that and other topical events with a nod to the classic advertising strategy teachings advanced by gurus such as Peter Field, Les Binet and Byron Sharp. So Alison, it's always lovely to catch up with you, but uh, it's particularly nice to be speaking to you at the moment because there's all sorts of planning-y anniversaries and awards and things like that coming up. Uh, And actually, Effectiveness Week is uh, not too far away. So I thought I'd begin by asking what you thought was we were all going to be talking about when it comes to Effectiveness Week. Um, well, I think we're going to be talking about some old themes and topics and some new ones. And I think you and I, Andy, have judged enough uh, and entered enough of these to know that there'll be some consistent themes, I think, around um, actually the power of consistency. So I know that certainly a couple of papers we've entered look at telling that story, but I imagine it won't be the only one because at the end of the day, consistency consistently proves its commercial effects. And I think we see that every year in the IPA. But I thought it was interesting. Uh, Andy and I were judging uh, the newest kid on the block in terms of effectiveness awards, the YouTube awards this year. And even in that, I thought it was interesting that there was a case from EE which proved that even in the newest channels like YouTube, that you can see the power of effectiveness of consistency with an EE case where you know, it built over three years in terms of a, a social activity. Yes, I really like that one. Actually, I loved the way that it was. It was, a, it was an idea where YouTubers uh, ended up playing a football match in the real world and charging people to go to the game. And so it was a lovely sort of blend of, you know, the real world and the yeah. sort of and, online space. And it was interesting, wasn't it, how it's kind of exponential growth built every got year. To year three. Yeah. So I think we'll see some of those old topics, the power of consistency, yes. the power of... Um, of big ideas, but I hope we'll begin to see some newer topics coming through as well and the proof of those newer themes. So the commercial coming of age of social media, um, because I think we all are spending more there um, and we're all looking at new ways to storytell there, but we are still scarce in terms of the proof of how that works and how that stacks up, whether you're either born in social or just using it to amplify where else you might be. So I think that's a, a new topic. Do you think there's been a sort of a, a slight backlash? I kind of feel like there's been... A something of a sea change where there's certainly a lot more scrutiny now on digital and social media uh, spends. Perhaps in the the early days, everyone was quite happy to, um, you know, watch the intermediate measures tick upwards and, you know, get the their likes and follower numbers up. And now there's kind of greater scrutiny, as you say, because we're spending more money on it yep. to sort of really tie back to hard commercial measures and see whether this money could have been better spent elsewhere. I do. I think we are seeing that. And I think we're beginning to. I think it had gone one way too far Mm. in terms of the hype. But I think sometimes you can be in danger of it going the other. And I think social um, and being social by design is incredibly important for modern brands and and modern communication. Um, And I think that 
because it went too far without actually having proof at the same time as performance channels coming along uh, in terms of performance marketing and their ability to absolutely show effects that are short term. And I think that has kind of shifted people's eyes that way. And I think what that can lead to is actually, and this is a topic that was discussed, I think, two years ago after... um, Les Bonet and Peter Field of course, <laughs> did some of the fabulous ever. analysis of what is a, a goldmine of database in the IPA showing that actually um, short-termism uh, in terms of over-reliance on short-term activation and performance channels is undermining true effectiveness. And I think there will be some hubbub and noise around immediacy over impact, reach over resonance and whether, you know, where that leads us. So I think we'll see that bubbling up. But I hope from just looking at a list of some of the entrants um, that we might be seeing some sort of interesting commercial uh, data around the power of social yeah, specifically. So I, I hope so. I think, um, as you say, Les Binet and Peter Field have, have really established you know, themselves as you know absolute leaders in this space and have built on that sort of uh, learning uh, year on year with the various reports. I think they're going to be speaking at the Effectiveness Week yeah. uh, <clears throat> and unveiling their latest findings, uh, which are more sort of tailored to um, what we've learned over the last few years in the more digitally oriented sort of case studies. And what's, I think, been interesting is, as you say, that their that 60-40 rule, the idea that we should be spending the majority of our budgets on brand building activity rather than just activation activity, uh, still seems to hold. Still seems good. to hold. I think one of the dangers sometimes is that we forget the role of creativity in the sort of effectiveness conversation. I mean, it's been well established, obviously, many, many, many times, uh, and in particular through the IP uh, awards, that there's a very strong relationship with creativity and effectiveness. But quite a lot of the more recent debates have actually led to perhaps an overemphasis on efficiency rather than effectiveness and Absolutely. on precision marketing and yep. the kind of marketing where we all sort of. Um, perhaps uh, accept begrudgingly and say, well, there's a place for it because it kind of works to a degree. But none of us, uh, even marketers don't necessarily get particularly excited by it and consumers quite often reject and actually find unduly intrusive. And, and so I think it will be good to see how very modern brands are embracing you know, creativity. Yeah, because and, there's, there've been lots of correlations, haven't there, in the past between sort of can winners and then three yeah. years later they win bigger IPA. Yeah. But I think what we've seen is the kind of definition of creativity changing in terms of Grand Prix at can, yeah. but we haven't seen that reflected in the effectiveness world yeah. yet. Yeah. Uh, so I'm kind of excited to see how that one does this year. Yeah. Okay. I think the last thing that be I will be interested to see is I remember... Uh, you and I judged the... We seem to be in a lot of judging panels these yeah, days, Andy. Yeah, that's right. We're such you a know, bunch I'm not of sure what that says about our age or, yeah, <laughs> exactly. our being a lovey. But I remember two years ago when we were judging the IPA, um, a number of papers mm. were all mentioning uh, Byron Sharp, Power Brands Grow. It was almost, you yes, know, we were incredible. joking at one point that, I mean, it has been obviously... All pervasive. Yeah. The most impactful marketing uh, <clears throat> book and thinking in the last decade, I'd say. And it was interesting last time that lots of people were leaning into it. And in fact, we've entered a case this year Uh, which absolutely leans into it. Um, But at the same time, um, I think there are different camps on whether you can accept it as gospel or not. Mm. So I think it'll be interesting to see whether this year we see anybody using a case to argue against it, because obviously brand differentiation and affecting those metrics um, are as important as distinctive. Well, I certainly, as a practitioner, believe that to be true. So there's certain parts within that thinking that I think is fantastic. Yes, I, 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 always, I always find it uh, amusing that so Byron Sharp, as you say, has got such uh, strong, loyal 
advocates um and you know it's an, there's an irony there because of course his whole point is that loyalty doesn't exist but mm -hmm. he does have some absolute sort of passionate um uh, fans out there um and again perhaps the binian field thesis is slightly more nuanced because they do talk about uh for the activation 40 percent that uh, a more precise targeted approach can be more effective mm -hmm. as long as you have the majority of the spend concentrated in a um, broad brushed um, you know reaching as much of the market as you possibly can in the yeah. penetration part of it so um, yeah I think there's 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 always new learnings that come out of the IPA exactly. awards and I'm really looking forward to, to seeing and them. And seeing if there's another book. Yeah that's right. <laughs> Suddenly mentioned in many a paper. Yeah. Um, so Thinking, obviously, I mean, that's coming up, but it's also the 50th anniversary of, of planning since our forefathers yeah. um, uh, started the, 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 the discipline. And, I mean, what do you think are the changes that have had the most impact in the way that you do your job? I think the first one is that there's just huge fragmentation about what is planning these days and who are planners. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, there are now all sorts of different flavours, aren't there, uh, and specialists, which I don't think is a good thing, if I'm honest. I think that we uh, it's not good for the industry as a whole to be silo-driven when so many um, problems that clients have require sort of holistic solutions. Uh, and I don't think it's very good for the individuals. I think people who put themselves into a little box and say, well, I'm only a social media strategist or I'm only a UX planner, it's not necessarily helpful for their careers either. So... I'm a bit worried uh, by that. Um, I think there is an issue that you talked about before, the consistency. Do people uh, plan long-range campaigns these days? Yes, it's harder to do because arguably it's harder to predict uh, you know, what's going to happen yeah. uh, next year, uh, let alone in five years' time. But I think uh, there's people have taken their eye off the ball a little bit about um, uh, sort of thinking about the bigger, long-term human truths that build the very best um, brands and uh, so that's become uh, a bit of a change I mean I, I quite like the speed that planning works at these days I've I've never um, been one for sort of ponderous sort of mm, old school agree. sort of planning I think you get to better to you know more interesting solutions quite quickly which is so I think it's a good thing actually yeah um, I would agree I would agree I think that um I think it's interesting coming back to <clears throat> you are seeing people splitting off into specialists and silos. And I think, you know, very much I was trying to think about how we develop T-shaped planners. Um, yeah. And you do need to have an understanding across the whole piece. But I think you can specialise yeah. in sort of more than one area. And I think I think it was John Bartle on the founder of BBH who said that, you know, the, the, the spirit of true planning is generosity, something along yes, those lines. Yes, that's a really good thought. And I think that... The need to be generous is more important than ever in a strategist because, yes. as you say, things are very fragmented and we need to work together with other specialists, whether that's within our own agency or elsewhere, uh, with platforms and publishers. And that sense, I think the role of a strategist kind of as a conductor of the orchestra, um, yes. I think maybe... Back in the day, there was a sense that sometimes they were these people that just sat in a room with a huge brain yeah, and yeah, yeah. went through a stage of cracked problem. And I think that actually being able to help a room and a team of people get to the smartest solution yes. uh, is actually a true spirit of it. And that and that really means being able to, to listen yes. um, and to be generous. Yeah, I, I think so. And understanding, even if you don't know chapter and verse on a particular issue, you know what that other person or what that other specialism might need from mm. you. Um, you know, as you say, creating an idea that other people can um, then use, build on, improve uh, and all the rest of it. 
Um, I mean, there's been a lot of talk recently about the role of planning per se, you know, I guess because of the anniversary uh, coming up, but also there's been some quite significant speeches by people like Mark Pritchard at um, P&G. And there seems to be sort of a movement um, that's evolving that says that planners are perhaps um, surplus to requirements or or that uh, much of the planning task should be taken in-house. Um, so are we going to be out of a job? Uh, well, I don't think that strategists are going to be out of a job. Mm. I think there's a question, or the question has certainly been raised, whether agency strategists yeah. um, are going to be out of a job. I mean, I think that the role of strategy is more than important than ever because um, being really clear on where you are and where you want to get to and how you're going to get there in a world that is so complex and is so fragmented, in a world where all of our clients are being disrupted or are the disruptors. Mm. You know, I think it was the US Army that coined the phrase VUCA, which was, I think, volatile, uh, uncertain, complex, ambiguous. Yeah, you've got to say uh, that quite uh, carefully, don't yeah, you? Yeah, you <laughs> do. Into trouble. Yeah. Uh, but I think it's very true of the business world we operate in. And so I think that... Um, being really clear is more important than ever. Mm. And I think that um, what it allows you to do, you know, and when I see fabulous CEOs in action, mm. I, I think they're, it's as much about what they say no to. Yeah. Because strategy is sacrifice. Exactly. And you can't say no to things unless you know that they're totally off plan, that they're not going to actually help you get to where you need to as, as quickly as you can. Yeah. So I think strategists and strategy, and I think certainly most clients would agree that yeah. strategists are more important. Yeah. Uh, potentially than they've ever been. I think that there's a whole debate as well about upstream strategists versus downstream strategists. And I think that's not new either. No, I think exactly. it was Stephen King who talked about the grand strategists. And the ad tweakers. And the ad tweakers. Or some people talk about the surgeons versus mm. A&E. Um, and I think you need to be operating at both. Yes. Um, and I think there's more of an opportunity to be operating upstream. Yes, um, other people are in there too in terms of the consultancy and things. But I think about, if I think about a business that, you know, I've touched a couple of times in my career. So I worked on Tesco, uh, oh, wow, can I say how long ago? That gives me an age, probably about 20-odd years ago at Lowhouse Spink. Fantastic. And at that point, they had, you know, um, very much decided that as a business, they weren't just going to be about selling products, they were going to be about service. And they brought mm. in 118 different initiatives. I think the role very much of Lowhouse Pink at that point was to take all of that and turn that into what has been a fantastic defining mantra in terms of every little helps that has stood the test of time. But I don't think Lowhouse Pink was involved upstream in crafting the broader purpose or vision. Whereas um, in terms of Tesco now, it's one of BBH clients. And certainly when Dave Lewis first came in, he worked with agencies, ourselves yeah. and another agency, to kind of recraft his vision, um, which is helping serve Britain shoppers a little better every day. Mm. And I think that shows you that the ability to be upstream in conversations yes. exists in a way that I don't think it did really exist when we first came into the business, no, I think that's I think that's probably right, and that's and and also what we found because we were doing a, an awful lot of that sort of work as well at Lucky Generals, and people really enjoy doing it in the business as well because you know we, we you know, it's it's very uh, rewarding, isn't it, to to um, be involved at that stage of a problem solving rather yeah. than just be given. Um, you know, a solution to, you know, a template to colour in. Yeah. Um, that's why I think that, that there's such a role for agencies uh, and planning within agencies. Because as you say, I mean, there's a difference between planners and planning. Mm -hmm. And it's always been the case that great people, whether that's great clients or great creatives, uh, have been able to do planning. I think there's a specific role for the planning function within agencies because it's helpful to have someone who's absolutely, utterly dedicated to representing that consumer 
point of view in the room um, and doing so without having um, immersed themselves in you know all the intricacies of the category which is what happens when you the, min- the minute you work client side yeah I- inevitably even if you try to keep yourself free from um, all those technical details you find yourself surrounded by people from your own industry and so I think it's useful uh, you know it's always useful to get that outside um, perspective uh, and then it just comes down to talent you know good planners make a difference and bad planners don't absolutely the ability to to simplify and to direct and to orchestrate uh, are I think key qualities that are as I've said more important than, ne- than ever and I think you know the thing about people moving in-house you know you can't you look at I look at people like Channel 4 and they've had a fantastic in-house kind of comms agency you can't say it can't be done of course. but I, I agree with you and I think that even the clients that I've had many of our clients I'm sure it's the same for you have internal they might call them a studio. They might call them their internal agency. They might, you know, there's different names to them. Um, and often it's about, again, working with those people. Exactly. I remember uh, when I was at Rainey Kelly, we used to work on M&S. It was very joined up when we looked at Christmas every year and you'd plan about a year out. And you would together, you know, craft what you thought that vision for Christmas was going to be and mm. work with their studio in terms of all the different touch points um, that the customer would experience that through. So I think it's not, even an and or it's how you join those so, things up definitely not i think you learn so much as well when I mean, we i mean our founding client was paddy power um and as many people know they've got i think probably the most talented or one of the most talented in-house teams that are far more creative frankly than most agencies i've ever worked with and an amazing body of people um with all sorts of uh you know guerrilla marketing skills and just kind of a very modern outlook on how you create um, and energy around your brand through social media content and PR and all the rest of it. Um, and right from the beginning, we worked very closely with them uh, and batted ideas back and backwards and forwards. And there was no real division between you know them and us. It was just you know one team. And if you can, again, it comes down to the quality of the people. It just so happened that their team was absolutely stacked with the most creative people that you can possibly ever imagine. Um, and uh, in that sort of situation, it absolutely works. It's, yeah. you know, and, that, and actually, it's a joy because you you learn all sorts of new skills that you you perhaps hadn't you know appreciated um, agency side. Yeah, exactly. You're listening to the Dog and Bone podcast from Propeller Group. If you're enjoying it, please share the link with your network, subscribe on iTunes or your normal podcast provider, and if you're feeling really inspired, please write a review to help us zoom up the charts. Now, back to the conversation. I think one of the things in this whole debate that's going on at the moment about um, strategy, where it sits, and a kind of sense that our advertising, our communication agencies are the worlds we've grown up in and still operate. You know, can we still justify the role of the agency planner in the modern world? Hmm. Uh, That's, again... um sort of slightly terrifying existential question, isn't it? There's all these um, sort of threats to our existence, but are they really? I mean, is my sort of uh, response to that. I think we don't have to... I mean, obviously, we should all never be complacent, but I don't think we should worry overly either. I think nothing comes from being sort of paranoid about these things. You know, we work with Amazon, um, and Jeff Bezos's absolute mantra, well, uh, is to say never pay attention really to the competition. You know, just focus on your end user, yes. or the consumer. Um, and he's done all right out of that uh, mantra. Uh, uh, I'm not sure we'll ever reach his sort of levels of success, but I, I like the idea of sticking to our own game. And our own game is delivering big ideas uh, that can make an enormous difference to clients' business on in the long term through the power of creativity. And I think many of the um, threats that are constantly sort of posited against us, uh, including the consultancies, that's not necessarily what they're good at. 
I mean, a lot of consultancies are filled with very clever people who can make all sorts of very smart contributions to the efficiency of a business, but not always to the effectiveness of that business. Um, and and again, they're, they're not necessarily minded or have the talent in-house to to develop creative um, solutions, as anyone who has been handed a document that's been created by the consultancies um, will know. Exactly, and I think the kind of media is whipping up this thing. Certainly, mm. uh, I, I think there's enough... If you look at where clients are increasingly spending their money <clears throat> um, in terms of digital transformation, in terms of brand experience and customer journeys, there's enough work there. Yes, for everybody. <laughs> for all of us, yeah. for everybody. So I don't think it's... Uh, I don't think it's a, again an, an and or. I think that you know it is. You know, we absolutely offer consultancy. We we offer um, all sorts of kind of growth products, and we're working with some clients in very interesting ways. But at the same time, I wouldn't look at a consultancy and say I could come to the table with a digital transformation plan. And I don't mm. expect that they can come and give a big emotional brand idea that will sustain and act as a, a kind of guide for a brand for the next thirty years. You know, and I think that things are being worked up, but we have our own. Sp- separate strengths i do think there is a middle ground where we are probably skirmishing most and i think for me i would look at that and think you know that often is in brand consultancy and in brand experience so when i think about um some of the people some of the work we do so we work with next and our first way of working with them was through sort of e-commerce consultancy looking at their website and looking at how through some very simple ux optimization it could be optimized and then from that looking at some product development so recognizing that they are fighting with Jeff Bezos, your client, uh, mm. and Prime. And so we delivered the first sort of um, capacitor offering that they'd come up with for that in Next Unlimited, uh, which was fantastic at driving their frequency. We also looked at um, their kind of credit offer. Uh, and obviously that's a business that had been built on the back of brochures, so, you know, a lot of credit. Mm. And again, re-engineered that as a product and service. So, you know, that is somewhere where probably, you know, you are competing in a different field. Yes. But... Equally, there are things either end of that where we are, where we aren't. You know, on on Tesco, one of the key things we have looked to do is obviously at BBH is the uh, Food Love Stories campaign. And that kind of talks to, if you're wanting to talk about quality, which was a key issue that Tesco wanted to talk about, you have to find a way to talk about it that's relevant uh, to the customer when everybody's talking about quality and that's true to Tesco. And I think that is, again, where the role of planning uh, comes to the fore because it was actually uh, the planner on the business at the time, not me, who came up with this piece of uh, insight, which was that the average person in the UK knows how to make 4.8 recipes. That's it. That's their repertoire. And they are actually looking for help. And the other wor- the other thing that this planner brought to the table was very much an understanding that right now it's all celebrity chef-led. Mm. Whereas in reality, the people you take recipes and inspiration from are actually your friends and family. Mm. And there's a sense of... Um, you can do this if you see, you know, Dave's um, steak and chips and it's being pro- provided and, and cooked by a large-eared 18-year-old. Yes, and I feel for me, one of the interesting tasks is how do you, uh, and that planning really excels, is how do you turn a brand around 180 degrees? I always remember we worked on, uh, and still do, on pot noodle, which again is one of these brands that had a real heyday in the in the 80s and 90s. It was the kind of uh, men behaving badly brand of uh, student uh, yore. Uh, and their, I mean, their line for a while was actually the slag of all snacks, which uh, seems extraordinary now in today's times that that was ever approved. Uh, but uh, the the thinking behind it was that it was so simple that you know any any sort of couch potato or slob could use it. 
Uh, and and of course now that's just out of kilter with what today's uh, kids want to do. They're just a lot more ambitious than that. And, and lazing around doing nothing is not the fun thing that it was when uh, we were growing up. Uh, and so our sort of strategy there was to flip the whole thing, same product benefit, so that it was all about uh, pot noodle being so quick and easy that uh, it could be used by anybody, even was go-getting people in the in the planet. So the line was actually, you can make it, uh, which works on that's both the functional level. You can literally make it. It only takes a couple of minutes, but also you can make it in life. And then, of course, you've got to take the piss and do it in a funny, sort of silly way because it is still only pot noodle. But for me, at our best, we can help brands really reinvent themselves for a new generation or for a new audience or for a new world that we find ourselves in that's right and I think it is <clears throat> sometimes that is about as you say turnaround <laughs> but sometimes that's about um, how you keep consistently growing a brand year after year and I think again when you think of a brand like it's a BBH but on Audi mm. you know it's a Vorsprung Dirk technique guiding it but if you look at the actual tone and sort of dialogue a lot of the work it's changed a lot mm. and I think you know again a planner's task is often to go as the planner in this case and uh, did um was to go how is luxury changing you know mm. yes it's car but it's also a, a luxury and actually we were still in a place that was quite um cold and black and white and the world of luxury has become much more colorful and mm. much more playful with much more sort of knowing wit you know it mm. isn't the status cold looking down a camera at you there's certain brands that still play that market but generally there's a lot more wit and playful and color and I think understanding how that world's changing and playing that in has seen quite a, uh, a resurgence. Still staying very true to what Audi is, mm. to Vosprung Dirk Technique, still very emotional demonstrations of the product, but playing differently to codes. And I think, you know, that's, again, something that strategists often bring to the party. Mm. In today's modern world as well, when we talk about planning, one of the skills of a planner has always and must always been the ability to <clears throat> make the complex simple. And I think that is... Increasingly, I don't know how you found this, but as we are finding ourselves increasingly in meetings with <clears throat> tech platforms, UX experts, um, it is the ability to bring it back to what does this mean to the consumer that's really important. And I think where we've seen that recently is in some work we've done for Samsung, um, where it's a immersive experience using AR, AR where you can now... Uh, walk into um, Family Guy's home and see actually how a connected, how a smart home works, mm. um, but done again with wit and playfulness. But I think the role of the planner throughout that was very much to help keep simplifying and bringing back what these complicated smart homes really mean for you as a benefit. So we've, we've talked lots about all the wonderful things that we've done, a clever old us and patting ourselves on the back about all our fabulous ex examples of planning. We must have made some mistakes, though, along the way. I know I have. I've made absolutely loads of them. Um, what's your biggest mistake that you've ever made? Only one. Uh, yes, and I think uh, we keep making them. And if we don't keep making them, we won't learn. Because anyway, you learn is by making mistakes. But um, my biggest... The thing that still makes me squirm in my seat as I sit opposite you is we was actually many years ago now, probably a decade ago, um, at, for the BBC... We had just won the BBC and we had been delighted with ourselves that through the pitch process, we had done some brilliant digital storytelling. Uh, we had suggested that they learned, launch <coughs> Ronnie and Roxy into the show of EastEnders uh, in the digital world first, that they would run a club in Ibiza called R&R, that you would find them on Facebook and lots of other social media, uh, and they would therefore live in that world before they entered the square. 
Um, that was fantastic. We were all delighted. And then we let a very junior team, uh, this was our mistake, not theirs, a uh, very junior strategist and account, account man basically take it and run with it. And in developing this game, they decided the part of it would be a clues you followed, a treasure hunt. And one of those treasure hunt clues would be found in the calf. And in order to do this, they broke into the East Ender set and filmed it and uploaded that. Um, because that was meant to be part of the treasure hunt. But no one gained approval from all the people that you might imagine you need to gain approval from at the BBC. Amazing. And nobody at the agency knew. <laughs> uh, so cue the next day where there were hundreds of phone calls about people thinking they were bomb threats uh, on the oh set of EastEnders. Oh, my goodness. Oh, disaster. And... I was on holiday when I got the call uh, and obviously it was a huge cock up we had to apologise for and uh, just horrendous. But the there is a learning for me in that, which was it was the very early days of our storytelling in digital and in mm. social. And there was a sort of sense that the, the kids that were native were the people to, to, let do, to, to do it and that somehow you could be looser and freer. But actually I learned that it was a place where you could have the maximum exposure mm. and ultimately that could live forever and therefore we needed to be as kind of grown up and precise in the way mm. in which we planned and approved that as elsewhere amazing how about you oh my goodness. what is making you squirm I've, I've got lots of examples a lot of them i think revolve around new business and pitches because there's something about that high octane um, environment which maybe encourages you to do things that you wouldn't normally do and to behave like you in a way that you wouldn't normally do and um an example of that would be uh, many years ago, we worked on something where uh, we had a tissue meeting uh, which revolved largely around tone of voice. So we weren't actually showing any work. Uh, and the thing that we seemed to get a really good bit of uh, reception to was just a, a little bit of tone of voice, a little bit of stimulus, which was a meme that was doing the rounds at the time uh, that some of you may remember uh, with a, an, a, an, a, an anteater holding his arms up and just the word, fuck you, I'm an anteater. So there was this amazing picture <laughs> of this. Remember. Do you remember? Uh, just looking absolutely triumphant and <laughs> magnificent. Fuck you, I'm an anteater. We, we used that to kind of say that this particular brand needed a bit more swagger, a bit more self-confidence, say, fuck you, we're really good at what we're doing. Fuck you, I'm an anteater. Client absolutely loved it. Everyone's laughing. It made for a really good meeting. We're all joking about it. And then when it came to the pitch, we thought, well, as a little bit of um, pitch theatre, somebody said, do you know what? I, I reckon, it was a couple of placements. One of them was a skilled seamstress. And she said, I reckon I could make a brilliant anteater costume and we could <laughs> re-enact that thing. They, they loved it so much in the last meeting. Um, we could walk past, you know, with the sign saying, fuck you, I'm an anteater. Fantastic. Oh, that could be quite a funny little nod. Of course, disaster happens when, as with many pitches, it wasn't the same people who came to the client meeting. Uh, so there was some people for whom this joke was going to mean absolutely nothing. And the meeting wasn't going very well anyway. And uh, towards the end of the meeting, uh, as we were sort of showing some of the work, the client went out to the loo anyway, bumps into uh, a placement student uh, getting changed into an anteater's costume, which was in the first place pretty <laughs> weird. Uh, then he comes back to the room kind of scratching his head, wondering what, what did he see there? The, 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 the guy um, then walks past, dressed as an anteater, past our boardroom window, which is all glass, uh, carrying a board. But he's written the sign, fuck you, I'm an anteater, on two different sides of the board. So on one side, it just says, fuck you. 
That was the side that was visible to the client. Uh, and on the other side, I'm an anteater. So he basically, for the uninformed client that wasn't present at the first meeting, all they witnessed was somebody dressed as an anteater walking past the boardroom with a sign saying, fuck you. And you won't be surprised to learn that we didn't get yeah. it. So that was my, my learning from that was don't do pitch theatre. It never works. It's yeah. always a bit of a cringe and just be yourself. Yeah, it reminds me of the time we did it with, um, we were pitching for Weetabix uh, when I was at Rennie Kelly and we put a wheat field in. We literally Amazing. got a, wheat, a, a field of wheat. Yeah. Apart from the client had hay fever. Oh, disaster. Um, we had to yeah. go and See, get... it just never, ever works. No. Always a wrong, bad idea. And... Um, so let's let's think about things that are a bit more positive. What have been uh, what, what's your most sort of inspirational one of your most inspirational times in in this business? I would probably have to say starting Lucky Generals because of all the uh, nice things that our industry reveals itself when you do something like that. So of course we fight tooth and nail and we pitch against each other and we. Um, you know, critique each other's work and all the rest of it. But ultimately, when you do something like that, people are genuinely, unbelievably helpful and offer to do all sorts of nice things for you, even though, you know, within six months, you'll be daggers drawn uh, with them. So I think generally our industry is full of really good, fun, interesting, exciting, well-meaning people. And mm. that's not true of all industries. I think one of the other things for me though, about our industry is uh it's. It, it, I think sometimes it gives you access to extraordinary opportunity and extraordinary people. And I think mine probably isn't is is something that the industry gave me access to, which was we did a lot of Irene <clears throat> Kelly pro bono work for the British Paralympics, and it was going to Rio uh, to the Paralympics, and just it was the most inspiring and humbling experience yes, in my life. It's just not one I would have ever done had I not you know got the opportunity to work for them pro yeah. bono, which again is something that our industry does a lot of pro bono, yeah. and it is I think those. Those are the sides of the industry that so often we don't talk about or, or really... I think it's a great example. I mean, at our best, our, the industry is still a brilliant place to work. I think it's never been more exciting. We do get all these extraordinary opportunities across all sorts of different um, brands and cultural issues and opportunities to make a difference on, on some really big stuff like that. And while we have some you know, challenges and threats and competitive pressures and all the rest of it, um, I would still massively recommend it to anyone wanting yeah. to have uh, an interesting and fun, stimulating career. Lovely to catch up with you as ever. See you again soon. Take care now. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us on The Dog and Bone. Please subscribe to the podcast. And if you have any questions or suggestions, do get in touch via our website, dogandbone.dog. Or send us an email at woof at dogandbone.dog. It's interesting what you're saying there about the uh, the the role of uh, planning changing over the years to encompass more upstream thinking. The advertising isn't always the solution. Uh, I'd love to hear what you think of um, the John Lewis and Waitrose campaign, um, which I have been a massive fan of both individual constituent parts uh, recently, or in fact for many years. Um, but actually, I'd, I'm not a big fan, uh, and I might be in a minority here of the 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 recent campaign which brings the two elements together. I mean, perhaps there's more to it than meets the eye and more that we will see unfolding over the coming months, but it it strikes me as a very lovely advertising solution uh, and perhaps more of a John Lewis advertising solution, if I'm honest, rather than I don't see a huge amount of value for waiters out of it, um, to some really profound problems that that business has on the high street. Um, and so 
perhaps, as I say, they will have all sorts of other product and service initiatives that will help them get out of the hole that they're in. Um, but it's a sort of a, a reminder that even for the the great, and I think it has been one of the you know the greatest campaigns of the last decade, even for the great and the good, um, advertising can't do everything. Uh, absolutely, I think the other thing <clears throat> is planning is always about starting with what's the problem we're trying to fix, mm. <laughs> um, and what are we trying to achieve with this brand, this piece of activity. And I think I like you have the the utmost respect for the journey that particularly John Lewis has been on, uh, but also Waitrose. Um, I have utmost respect for their partnership model. I think it is, you know, I as a as a punter, I feel I get a different service in Waitrose than I do in any other supermarket because of it. Um, but my question when I saw them bringing it together was, what are you trying to fix? Because I think people do know that there is a connection between John Lewis and Waitrose. I think they do know that the partnership model is true to all. I think they already know what the value of that partnership model is. So I was left wondering what you gain mm. by doing that. Uh, particularly because, as you say, it feels like it's a more John Lewis approach. Yes. And from my understanding, it's... It's it's leaning into the part of the business that's actually struggling more. Yes. Um, yes. Whereas it might be that you'd want to do the reverse. Yes, it felt somewhat internal focus, which again is not a you know bad thing necessarily. And with the retail, the internal audience is incredibly important. So perhaps that's one of the the problems that they're trying to uh, solve with it. But um, for me, it felt like a, a somewhat of a a wrong step for for such a sure-footed. Um, brand uh, despite some of the plaudits that it's gained uh, within the industry because of course it, creatively it's still as ever uh, a lovely piece of uh, uh, communication um, it, it'd be just interesting to see whether it addresses the actual underlying and whether it's challenge. talking to the consumer yeah that's yeah, what it comes exactly. back to what so the benefit is 